What's up? I'm Bobby Jones. And I'm Aftal Aziz. We're two friends who decided to quit our jobs in corporate life to follow our purpose and passion in helping people find new ways to use their talents for good. Together, we're co-founders of the best-selling book, Good is the New Cool, Market Like You Give a Damn. We welcome you to the Good is the New Cool podcast in partnership with Soho House. Featuring some of the world's most inspiring creatives, entrepreneurs, and activists who want to use business and culture as a force for good. We're going to delve deep into their unique stories and the one thing they have in common, the desire and the courage to transform our world for the better. This evening, we'll be hearing from Robert Egger, nonprofit leader, speaker, activist, and author of the brilliant book, Begging for Change, The Dollars and Cents of Making Nonprofits Responsive, Efficient, and Rewarding for All. As founder of DC Central Kitchen, Robert's motto is, neither food nor people should go to waste. Today, we're going to visit Robert at LA Kitchen and really go behind the scenes of this new movement in food that he's creating. You know, he's not just a great example of how good can be at the heart of a successful business plan, but he's just a good guy. I don't know if you know this, but he is a 15-gallon blood donor to the American Red Cross. So he literally puts his, you know, blood out there as well as his sweat and tears. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm really excited to hear about Robert's story. I mean, I'm a big fan of his, but you got to visit him at LA Kitchen to do this. So what was that like? Yeah, so uh, for for listeners of the podcast, I live in LA and Bobby lives in New York. So I was the lucky one who got to go out there to LA Kitchen, which is this huge facility um, where they bring together all of this waste food. So they specialize in taking food that may look ugly, that may be just on the verge of being expired. And they use that food to then also train people who may be formerly incarcerated, maybe ex-drug addicts, maybe kids aging out of foster care teach them how to be chefs, and then serve these meals to the hungry, the elderly, anybody who needs good, nutritious food. So this is like an inspiring example of like a quadruple bottom line business that is really dedicated to serving the LA community. And so it's a very humble place. You know, you walk into it, it's a, it's a massive food prep place. It's a commercial kitchen. Yeah. Um, but what's different is the attitude of the people in there. There is love in that place. Yeah. There's a sense of mission in that place. You know, you see it in the chalkboards that they have put up there. You see it in the way that, you know, people show pride in the work they're doing. Like, do you want to see what I'm doing? Here's here's what's going on. Here's how I'm using my hands to be of service. So it's a wow. very warm and humble place to go to. Um, and and you, you get a sense of, you know, nourishment. You know, I love to eat. So was it just like every amazing meal that you can imagine like <laughs> so for listeners of the show one thing you should know is that bobby and i one of our common passions is food and uh bobby is known for doing something called bobby jonesing something which is where you go to a restaurant you eat a dish and you like it so much that you order the same dish again i love it <laughs> and like, eat it i'm gonna double down on this dish <laughs> it's, a, it's a ball of move i like that yeah i'm like fuck it you if, if it's that good do it again like <laughs> Why not? Uh, I tried doing it, which is why I weigh like 250 pounds <laughs> and Bobby is still skinny. So I'm just jealous of him. But but no, it, it's it's really interesting when you look at how food has changed in culture, right? I think yeah. it, it's become this, uh, like music, like fashion, it's a source of social impact, right? And what we're privileged to see is all these examples around the world of people using food at the center of social movements, right? Yeah. You know, there, there's so much... Um, that we can experience now virtually, 
everything from fashion to, to music to art and all these things you can see and experience in real time on your phone. But food is something you can't transmit digitally. The only way to experience an amazing meal is to sit down and actually experience it. I feel like food is one of the few remaining things where that's that that yeah. is really, really the case. case. Yeah. What's really interesting is like there's so many different models of how to put food at the center of a social movement. There are examples of restaurants all around America who are trying out new models of food to make it more inclusive, to make it more democratic, to make it more nutritious for people to eat. And I think Robin and LA Kitchen, they do all of the above. They help train people. They help make sure that food doesn't go to waste. They feed the elderly. You know, Robert's a big proponent of this crisis we're about to have with the elderly when there's not enough support for them as well. So for all those reasons, it was really just a magical experience to go there and spend some time with them. Robert, welcome to the Good Is A New Cool podcast. Thank you so much for having us here at LA Kitchen. Glad to have you, man. Makes Uh, me happy. So I want to go back in time to you working in nightclubs. I think a lot of people may not know this part of your story. How long did you work in nightclubs and what did you do? Well, it's funny, man. I've been been in this business probably twice as long as I was in the nightclub world, but that was such an epic part of my life. I mean, it's funny because as a young man, I mean, like 13 years old, I really got fixated on this idea of, I want to open a nightclub. And it wasn't booking bands, it was the idea of, I wanted to put on shows. You know, I wanted to use music, theater, comedy, dance, the same way I saw a variety of shows, whether it was Carol Burnett or Flip Wilson or the Smothers Brothers. Back in the 60s and 70s, they seemed to be putting on shows, but many of them seemed to have an alternative purpose to the show. What really got me excited was the explosion of punk rock, which was just because it was, it was loud, it was purposeful, it was political. And it's a lot of what I loved about the, the, the music as a, as a kid growing up in the 60s, that sense of purpose behind what, what musicians were trying to achieve via music seemed to be reignited in the, in the punk rock movement. And most people who've been in the business a long time will tell you punk isn't you know, about your hair color, your shoes, or even the, the, the kind of volume in which you project. It's an attitude about respecting each other, uh, fighting for your own rights, fighting for the rights of others. Uh, so, to a certain extent, that element of punk fascinates me, not necessarily the more testosterone side of it that people might associate. And I, I love one of the quotes you've said before, which is, my job is to make people brave. Well, you know, most people would look at the work I do and have historically done offering men and women who are coming out of prison or the streets job opportunities, right? And so they'd immediately think that the bravery you and I are discussing is exclusive to helping men and women assume the bravery of trying to live a life that's sober or a life out of the prison system where they might be highly functional, right? But really, you know, there's an old saying, Gandhi once said, the oppressed and the oppressor are equally afflicted. So I became fascinated by that idea of how can I create an environment where everybody rose up simultaneously? Everybody could could experience bravery at a different level. For some, again, it might be that idea of I can be sober for another day. But for somebody else, it might be I can stand it to somebody who I would normally be afraid of based on the color of their skin, the background, their tattoos. But in this environment, I found myself engaged in a really powerful conversation that I didn't expect. And in effect, that's a form of bravery. I met somebody who challenged me today and I'm brave enough to let go of what might have been a 10, 20, 30 year bigotry or stereotype to maybe ponder something new. Mm. And I'm much more interested in how do you heal the metaphorical oppressor? 
So there's an interesting process we go through that we lovingly call the calculated epiphany, which is how do you set the stage so that people have their individual metamorphosis, their individual kind of enlightenment moment without me telling them it's coming. But if you set the stage where there's either likelihood it will happen, then you can just watch people open up and, and again, step into that place that they might have been afraid of. And is food a way to get to that calculator? Oh, dude, food is, is, to me, it's like, and again, this was an accident because my original intention with the nightclub world that I was in was to, again, to purposely use music and the theater of a show to lure people in to hear through lyrics ideas they might reject via a speech, right? So that's the kind of, I spent a huge amount of intellectual time thinking about how can I make that happen? But when I started the DC Kitchen with food donated from the inauguration of President Bush Sr., every media outlet in the world came because, you know, we're both marketers. What media outlet in the world can resist that picture? You know, food from the inauguration going to poor people the next day. But the phone started ringing, and what I realized is I had touched a nerve I didn't know was there. That Americans had this, apparently, this deep um, guilt or shame about the amount of food we wasted. It was almost universal, this enthusiasm that people had about the work I did recovering food. Now, of course, I wanted to talk about the job training program, but it was fascinating that people were so interested. So I, I became fixated on this idea that, wow, you know, music and food have such similar properties. They get people to lower their guard. They get people to talk and open up. Maybe I can use food instead of music and a kitchen can become my nightclub. And that's actually what the LA Kitchen is. It is my nightclub. That's that's an amazing metaphor. I think it's, it's I, I want to go back to, you know, in this podcast series, a lot of the time we talk about this idea of a moment of obligation where you're like, oh, okay, this is what I meant to do. This is my purpose, right? And I think looking back at your story, you had this moment when you were in a food truck, I think. Yeah, well, you know, this uh, weekend is my wife and I's 34th wedding anniversary. And the, we were looking for a church to get married in. And we were young. I was a bartender. She was a secretary. Neither of us went to college. We had no money. And most of the churches we went to wanted, to us, insane amounts of money. And we were kind of put off. It's like, dude, we just want to get fucking married, you know? It's like, we're not trying to, this isn't like, you know, I don't know, like a coronation yeah, or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, we found this little church, and they had a thing called the Great Patrol, G-R-A-T-E. And with other churches in the community, they took turns going out at night with parishioners to serve people who were on the street. Now, to be honest with you, I didn't want to go. I thought it was cool they did it. And I thought that was an element that I'd rarely seen in any church, a group that actually went out and did something in their own community, right? So that intrigued me. But long story short, I got dragged one night out to do this and went out just trying to get it over with and still very much burdened by the stereotype of what it was going to be like to be up close to someone who's homeless. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had always tried to be empathetic, but from a distance. In fact, I oftentimes say, hello, my name is Robert, and I'm a recovering hypocrite because I had spent so much time talking about changing the world with music, but tried every which way I could to avoid going out on a truck to serve people in my own backyard. But on the road out there, um, I asked simple questions to mask my, my nervousness. Where's the food come from? I found it was purchased, and I'm thinking, well, wait a second. I work in an industry, and a lot of my friends work in caterers where they're always talking about how much food they throw away at 2 in the morning. So I was thinking about that. But when we pulled up on this rainy night in front of the State Department, here was this long line of people in the rain waiting dutifully for this truck 
so they could get fed, so they could go get dry somewhere. And I just really witnessed kind of a, the, the uh, hostage to charity that these people were literally, it, it's almost as if the truck needed people to be out in the rain so they could justify this well-intended historic construct that is based on the redemption of the giver, not the liberation of the receiver. So literally driving home with my future wife, we started talking and I said, you know, restaurants have a ton of food. If they could just collect this food, but I met so many people who defied my stereotype and look very normal and rational and able to work. They should start a cooking school. That way it can help people get out of the rain and they can be part of the solution, not perennial recipients of charity. So what was just, you know, my wife was a secretary, literally taking notes in the car while I drove home and talked. That was a rough business plan and enthusiastically went out to try and get nonprofits who I assumed would be excited for a new idea that again would allow them to do more people, better food, less money, and shorten the line by the way you served it. But I was rejected. Everywhere I went, every charity was just completely resistant to the idea of what I was proposing to the point of challenging my assumption. I was told I was naive to think homeless people could work, restaurants would hire them. I mean, all of these kind of, what became clearly to me, you know, almost grabbing at straws, clutching desperately to a system and trying to avoid any kind of adaptation. So the DC kitchen got started because no one else would. But ever since then, it's been built on this construct of tearing down false bears. It sounds so naive, but one of the great revolutions of the DC kitchen was saying, in effect, instead of the the table that divides us, in which I'm a volunteer serving you, the poor person, in here, everybody comes around to the same side of the table, and you are equal in that you are citizens of the same city. Now, you might have varying backgrounds, but it's saying everybody has a role, everybody has a gift. It only works if we work together side by side, so let's make that the centerpiece of our experience. You know, you brought up a really interesting word, citizens, and it's a word that we use in the book, Good as a New Cool, and one of the principles we have is think about people as citizens, not just consumers. Right? And it's a, it's a precept to brands to say, don't just think about people in that very transactional way. But it strikes me that's a lot of the work you're doing is helping people recover that citizenship part of themselves they, they've forgotten about. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. We're experimenting now with this beauty myth. What do we view as ugly? And what does that, that artificial label do? So it's obvious with food that when we, you know, people can instantly get the nuttiness of throwing away a beautiful cantaloupe because it's got a small blemish on the outside. You know, well, what about this person? You know, and that metaphorical bruise or blemish they have, whether it's the actual wrinkle of age or whether it's the, the bruise of incarceration. Yeah, yeah. So the beauty myth, that idea of, of how do we judge things, I, and that might be, I'm experimenting now with how can I talk about that in a way that is, you know, that people can get. And I want to talk about another thing that you've said, which I really like, which is in agriculture, we've forgotten about the culture bit. You know what people sometimes, in their understandable frustration with the modern food system, they want to throw the baby out the bathwater. And what they fail to realize, I think, is I think one of the most interesting historic footnotes in modern American history, which is for the first time in 12,000 years of modern agriculture, an army came back from a war after World War II and didn't go back to the farm. Never in the history of the world had that happened. Normally, you know, rich people would declare war, but the sons of farmers went off and fought. And that's when we really broke from that agriculture. Now, not to romanticize that era too much, but I became fixated on the reality that that was 
early based in freedom. I mean, it was that idea for the, for a generation of young people. That was a hallelujah moment. I mean, think about it. For 12,000 years, the two great dreams of humans was flight and cheap, plentiful food. You know, the idea of I don't have to work so hard to basically feed me or my family every day. Feeding your, yourself and your family was, was a, you know, all-consuming task. So that amazing moment is, is not to be dismissed. Mm. But that being said, you can't really go back to that era. There's things you can re-explore. There's dynamics of it that are worth re-evaluating. We have to make some kind of urban peace between the need to feed 9 billion people and that sense of connectivity that people long for. I think the food movement we think is about food. I think it's really about community, longing desperately, that deeper hunger we have to be connected. So whether it's an older person looking for some nutrition support or whether it's that younger person looking for service hours or that corporate group wanting to find a team building exercise, is there a way in which I can use food to help people explore connectivity, culture, and citizenship. It's so important in this day and age when so many people are feeling disconnected because of technology, because they don't, they feel so isolated. It feels like the food movement, as you call it, is catching up to your principles. I feel like there's a new generation of chefs who are really thinking carefully about not just how the food is sourced, but their role in the community as well. Do you feel like it's finally caught up with what you've been preaching all these years? Well, you know, while there may be ideas that I've talked about in the past that people are um, getting excited about, and that this includes also the work I do with Jose Andreas in Puerto Rico with, you know, 35 million meals made in a side-by-side, -side, using school kitchens, all these kind of things. But the next thing I'm looking at, which is, you know, hopefully the next thing we start working towards is, I, I'm very concerned about intergenerational warfare and that, that you see this with America where older people, the most reliable voters, are being manipulated by fear. And at the same time, I see on Facebook, you know, posts how the, how the boomers destroyed America or how millennials are the worst generation ever. And I believe these are, they're designed to keep a group of people that they could find common ground. They keep us from being dangerous. It's tribal. It is. So that idea of like, what could unite generations? And food has that ability. So I'm really interested in the the political evolution of chefs and how do they use their notoriety, not just to talk about health and the environment and workers' rights and a variety of other issues, but that idea of how do you elect people who show up on day one who understand that food culture or local foods isn't a Berkeley, Birkenstock dream, that it, it is a really practical economic opportunity that could be seized by an enlightened mayor, governor, president. Uh, and not only that, but that amazing energy of a citizenry that 70 million people go out to volunteer, looking once again for that place in which they feel like their life has meaning and, and clumsily it seems trying to achieve that through a volunteer experience. And again, too often is driven by that primitive desire for your own redemption, not someone else's liberation. So to me, there's a huge opportunity now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working on that intergenerational political alliance. And I think one of the things you've been championing the most is the role, the leadership role that nonprofits should take in this. You know, how nonprofits are the third biggest employer in America, three trillion in assets, one tenth of the American economy, but don't act like it and have kind of almost stopped innovating in their models as well. And I think that's why you're turning to social enterprise almost as like the bridge, right? Well, A, social enterprise or or a nonprofit earning income to subsidize its or to, to fully fund its charitable work interests me for a lot of different reasons. The ability to pay a better wage to employees and provide benefits, 
Um, but it allows me to speak truth to power without worrying that I won't get a grant. And I understand the dilemma, but many organizations won't challenge sometimes either really stupid ideas put forward by foundation overlords or relationships that benefit a corporate donor more than it actually does the recipient agency. And how rarely does it allow for advocacy? But going back to your original idea, you know, yesterday I did a speech in San Francisco to nonprofit CFOs, the financial officers. And I was talking about, you know, you all are money people. So really, you know, listen to me. And if you're going to take one nugget out of this speech today, this is it. There is no profit without nonprofits. You know, that it, it, no mayor can attract investment business or or families to live in a town that doesn't have arts and culture, communities of faith, healthcare, education, clean air, clean water. These are all the things we produce. So you cannot make money without our role. Yet, so why have we accepted this subservient thing where we're, we feel only that we're entitled to a small percentage of the profit we help make and no political voice when the same people who make that profit have the open ability to elect people to basically protect their interests, why are we being silent? Do you really feel like consumers are a huge part of the solution? They vote with their wallets and say... Oh, they always have been. We as a, as a capitalist society genuflect, not we individually, but the kind of collectively we seem to genuflect and think that the, the idea of the Milton Friedman economics that said, in effect, the role of business is to make money. No one will business make money for its investors. Now, I despise that culture. I agree. And now, so, but my thing is like, if you choose to make that, God bless, man, good luck, but I'm not obligated as a consumer to help. But if you study independence movements, interesting enough, the British were able to dominate India for 150 years, and they never had more than 3,000 officers ever stationed in India. What Gandhi, when he marched to, down to the port city of Dandi over 26 days, I believe, and picked up a handful of salt, it was one of the most, I think, brilliant political moves and, and this symbolism saying, look, it, in this climate, salt's an essential. This is a symbol of our united subjugation. The fact that it is illegal to pick up salt in our own country, natural salt on the beach, and we are surrounded by ocean on two sides. Yet what I did is just broke the law. We have to buy salt imported from England. There's 350 million people. They can't arrest us all. The, the combined economic power of us buying salt represents the one leverage we have. No. After 150 years, they got the British to the negotiating table with table salt. Dr. King used the idea with dimes to ride a bus in Montgomery. Cesar Chavez used table grapes. So what they proved is that poor people's pennies are what drive the economy. And the illusion of power is revealed when poor people stop participating. To me, this was a revelation. If poor people, instead of punishing through the boycott, could reward and drive and incentivize behavior burst on what we lovingly call the boycott. Imagine that. Imagine 100 million young people in America raised doing service matched with billions of other young people around the globe who have a, a, a universal language of hip-hop. Imagine if we could start to get people to think about how do you reward and incentivize behavior and use market forces to create capitalism 2.0 versus just going about our daily business and thinking, well, we don't really, what, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just a, it's just a hamburger. It's just a, a this or a that, you know, or, or it's just a vote. I think we've been, we've been tricked into thinking we have no power when the reality is we've always been in charge. I love that. And final questions. What advice would you have for young creative entrepreneurs, whether they're restaurateurs, chefs, anybody in the food business, about taking the opportunity of this moment? 
Well, first and foremost, I think that the larger society will tell you what success is and what's going to make you happy. And too often we genuflect to the false assumptions that like if you have a successful restaurant, you must open a second and then a third and a fourth. Without stopping to think, is that truly what's going to make you happy? Is that what you want to do or is that what your family or your society thinks will make you happy? So determining your own goals. It's almost like saying, I want to be a chef. And I want to be a famous chef. And it's like, okay, well, what, what do you want to achieve? At the end of the day, you know, what are your goals? And to really stop and think it through. And, and I just wish people would really think more and more about how are you going to define your own happiness? But anyway, and I think the other flip side of what I tell anybody at any age is that sometimes we want to measure momentum or movement in big strides versus what I lovingly call relentless incrementalism. You know, that idea of success, like the fact that we're sitting here and... You know, the D.C. kitchen's now been open 30 years, which is, you know, debatable whether that's a good thing. Well, you know, there is a debate on whether that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But regardless, um, you know, the it's the cumulative effect of day in, day out, going to the basement of a shelter in D.C. and humping it out. And showing up here day in and day out, doing work and celebrating the small victories of a student who speaks up or the first eye contact you make with a student who can't take their head up because they're so mired down in, in either lack of self-worth or a, a, an undeserved sense of shame, whatever keeps people from engaging. I love it when students reveal something about them. So they laugh for the first time. To me, that's a glorious day. If I can go home and my wife will say, what happened? You know, I might say, wow, well, we got a $50,000 grant. Um, I was in a podcast, but nine times out of 10, it's like, oh man, there's this dude today who smiled. You know, to me, those are the kind of things that when you think about that idea, if you're a restaurateur, it's that customer who stopped you on the way out. And there isn't a restaurateur who doesn't dig this. When a customer stops you on the way out and said, this was a special day, you know, and you made it even more special. This meal was so meaningful. Thank you. That's all most people want. And if you really stop and, and, and again, reevaluate what's going to make you, it does make you happy. Not what will, but what does make you happy. And how can you build a career around those kind of milestones, not necessarily the monetary or the possession side. Robert, that is a fantastic place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for being such an inspiration to us all. And uh, we're going to turn everybody in the direction of LA Kitchen to hopefully support all your current and future endeavors as well. I appreciate that, man. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thank you very much. I love Robert's challenging of the nonprofit models and the innovation within it and just the, the willingness to question its its own practices, models, assumptions, and behaviors and to see, is there a better way? Um, is there a more effective way? Are there assumptions about the communities that we serve that get in the way of us serving them in even bolder or more audacious or more effective ways? more creative ways, more compassionate ways. And so I think what Robert is really focusing on is this idea that no business, whether you're for-profit or non-profit, should be beyond those types of questions, that that th that type of critical analysis. And I think because he's not afraid to, to ask those questions of himself and his organization, he's been able to continue to push the boundaries of what a non-profit is, um, what a social enterprise is, what a chef can be within culture, the role that food can play in culture. And I think th those are the types of people that are really driving culture and commerce and, and, and social change 
in the ways that it needs to happen. Um, because it has to be disruptive. We can't solve these problems um, using the same level of thinking that existed when these problems uh, were created. I love the way that he pushes the envelope in that in that way. Yeah, it's that this idea, you know, there's a great book I read once called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's true for people. I think it's probably true for culture and society, right? And and it's a real moment right now where you have to go, okay, do I keep clinging to the orthodoxies of the past? Or you go, let's just make it up. Let's make up a new one, you know? And I think that's what... You know, he, he has almost like a, a Buddhist approach to it, where he's just like, all right, I'm going to let go of it if it doesn't serve me, if it isn't right for the moment, and invent a new way of doing it. Yeah. And for a, a gentleman of his age, he, I think he's about to celebrate his 60th birthday or something like that. Yeah. That's inspiring, you know, yeah, to someone man. like me. Um, and uh, to see somebody just approach it with a sense of like gleefulness almost. Is, is wonderful to behold as well. He's a really funny guy, you know, when you meet him in person <laughs> as well. One of the other things about Robert is he's actually one of the best proponents for social enterprise as being the third way of, of, of how capitalism should evolve. So he, he's running a social enterprise. He's not running a nonprofit. It's the best of both worlds because you have the heart and soul of trying to achieve a higher purpose in the business but it is surrounded by a profit model, which allows you to scale that business, right? So they're expanding into things. You can go in an LA airport and buy snacks from the LA kitchen because that's a huge market for them yeah. to enter, you know? So they don't have the conventional or orthodoxies of saying, oh, we're a nonprofit, we can't play in that space. All bets are off. Like you can play in any space that you want to and find ways to actually kind of, uh, you know, generate revenue that keeps you in business. I love it. Those are the, the that's the type of thinking that you know this this industry leads right now. You know, one of the things that I found really uh, surprising is how he started off in in clubs, in concerts um, as a promoter. That's not necessarily uh, a typical background for someone who's a chef. Yeah, I think that um, Robert really gets the role that culture plays in creating a more equitable society. The fact that he's been able to not only use food, but also understand the intersection of food with music and all these other yeah. touch points, yeah. it can create these spaces for collaboration. I think that um, Robert really gets the role that culture plays in creating a more equitable society. The fact that he's been able to not only use food, but also understand the intersection of food with music and all these other yeah, touch points, yeah. you can create these spaces for collaboration and communion. Yeah. And I, I just love what he's what yeah. he's doing with it. He struck me as being like a punk rock guy when I first met him. Cause he's yeah. He's like this guy who's just got a ball of energy and who's just irreverent and just doesn't give a fuck, you know? And yeah. it's funny, like one of the things that uh, I, I noticed he has a little tattoo of a heart on the back of his middle finger. And I was like, <laughs> what is that heart for? And he's like, to remind myself not to give people the finger. Wow. To react with love, right? And I was like, that's so interesting that you tattooed a heart. He's like, um, he's like you, no, no, love you. Love you, exactly. <laughs> you know, and so he is just a fascinating guy and he's an OG in this space. Like he has been running DC Kitchen, LA Kitchen for a long time. He has fed millions of people, trained thousands of people, and he's still so humble. And 
there's something about food which is also something that brings people together. So that's why I have such a huge amount of curiosity about how food plugs into all of these other cultural revolutions that are going on. And it's almost like the connective tissue. Yeah. You know, because it's one of those things that are going to link a farmer in the Midwest in a red state and a chef in California in a blue state because they're both part of that same ecosystem. You know, and they both have that same instinct to want to feed people, you know, and be of service to them. And and I think if you can find that common ground, then the politics disappear, right? Because you're both in service of that same common goal as well. You know? I, I think he taps into that well. And I think he realizes that chefs in particular have this really potentially powerful role in culture. And, and I love that he is challenging chefs to reimagine the role that they can play, um, not just through a culinary lens, but through a cultural lens and through like a real civic lens. Chefs being the ones who are really kind of creating these, these spaces and moments really where we all come together to talk, to connect, yeah. to like explore new possibilities to challenge assumptions and all these other things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dope. And I think it's, it's great what he's doing. Like a friend of ours says, everybody's got to eat. And so that's why chefs have such an interesting role to play in this whole movement. They're the leading edge. They're the ones who make things like regenerative agriculture and a plant-based diet and growing food in inner cities cool. Yeah. Just like organic became cool. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, Robert, he's become this this very celebrated figure in the culinary community, but that wasn't always the case, right? So, I mean, one of the things he talks about is the, the failure in that journey. So there have been moments where they've had to reset their business model and, you know, get knocked back on their heels of going up, okay, this didn't work. We're not going to stop we're just going to change it up and get better. You know, so having that grit and perseverance to keep going and be flexible enough to change your mind and accept when things aren't going your way, that's kind of what you kind of need in this space. You know, social innovation requires innovation. And that means if the model isn't working, let's try a new model, you know. But the important thing is that you keep going. And, and by doing that, I can see how other young chefs are watching what they're doing and finding ways to weave parts of that into their own business models, whether it's hiring the formerly incarcerated, whether it's using waste food. It's the DNA that is now spreading beautifully into lots of other places. And I hope we see the strains of that become part of the norm, just like organic or locavore or whatever else. And you start to see social justice be a part of what's on your plate. Thank you for listening. Uh, this program is brought to you by Good Is The New Pool and Soho House in association with Radio Wolfgang. It was hosted by me, Bobby Jones, and Abdel Aziz. It featured Robert Edgar, founder and president of LA Kitchen. If you want to know more, please go to goodisthenewpool.org. And if you want to hear every new episode as soon as it drops, subscribe now. Hit the subscribe button right now. Thanks for joining us. And if you're posting, make sure you use uh, hashtag good is a new cool and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. 